Well, there's good news. The good news is tickets are still available for the Austin Liturgist Gathering this May. May 25th and 26th, to be exact. The bad news is they really are selling quickly. So for those of you who are thinking about maybe joining us for the Liturgist Gathering in Austin, Texas, uh, maybe head over to theliturgistgathering.com and look at the info and think about reserving your spot before you can't anymore. See, I thought the bad news was going to be that you were not allowed to do the shave our heads and wear the white tuxedos because Jenny was going to kill you. Oh, only the patrons know about that story. Oh, that's right. We talked about that in the last letters conversation. Which, conveniently, you could become a patron. (laughs) I didn't actually mean that to become a second ad, but there you go. It works together quite well. And of course, if you were a patron and you came to the Liturgist Gathering in Austin, then you could also go to our patrons only after party. Which is a a party of the highest order. (laughs) I have removed my shirt at a Liturgist Gathering after party at the screaming request of the crowd. That might actually not be a selling point now that I think about it. <laughs> it's merely to illustrate the degree to which it really is a party. Yeah, it's it's the it's the kind of order we're talking about. Yes, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of shots. Uh, yeah, good times. What I was referring to the tuxedos, we, we had had a plan, but it, it was shut down uh, for the sake of Mike's survival. But we were going to try to show up and like the second on the morning Saturday morning just kind of show up with all of our hair shaved off and wearing white tuxedos and just not say a word about it that was our plan but uh I still wish we could do it listen I, mean, I was threatened with divorce papers <laughs> I heard it I heard it firsthand <laughs> it, it wasn't gonna fly yeah Jenny's not having that I'll, I'll at least probably I'll at least wear my kimono how about that I'm wearing it right now that's for I think so, about shaking it up maybe like a like a t-shirt and some jeans, maybe a blazer. <laughs> <laughs> maybe like a science t-shirt. Really yeah, throw them off. Really throw them off to a science instead of a plain t-shirt. Do a yeah. science t-shirt. Ah, yeah, I can shake it up. You can wear those black glasses. I got new glasses. Oh, they look the same. They, these aren't the new glasses. What? I'm gonna bust those out for the first time in Austin. <sighs> Folks. That's true. That's literally true. If you want to see my kimono and Mike's new glasses. <laughs> What you need to take from this is the two of us get unreasonably excited about the Liturgist Gathering. <laughs> it is by far my favorite thing that we do really uh, because y'all are fun. It's it's what I, what I love is when we go to the Liturgist Gathering and we get in the room and you're all there. Uh, you basically ignore us because <laughs> all of you start forming friendships and hanging out and then continuing those relationships after you leave. So it really is an amazing thing if you're a person who feels in some way, if you don't quite fit in with those around you uh, in terms of how you have a spiritual belief system or practice or none at all. And you really need a non-judgmental accepting space while you either process things or have processed things and have landed in a different place than those people around you. All right. Well, we'll see you there. Go to theliturgists.com slash gatherings. Or theliturgistgathering.com. <laughs> yeah, go to that one. The yes. liturgists, plural, gathering. That's the liturgists gathering. Or just Google liturgists gathering. Sometimes it's hard to say when you say the website. Liturgist sounds like you're just kind of stopping at the T. Especially but, me. Yeah, but it has an S. I'm told that when I say uh, Ask Science Mike, it sounds like I'm saying Ask Science Mike. Hmm. 
Ask science, Mike. That's because you compress your own voice. You take out those consonants. I do. (laughs) Oh, man. We are real effective advertisers, folks. (laughs) Okay, so the episode today you're about to hear, it's a good one. Um, It's about one of our favorite topics in the world, mysticism. With Hillary McBride, William Matthews, Science Mike, and me, Vishnu Das, a.k.a. Michael Gunger. I like the a.k.a. Like, Like it's... You, your birth name is your AKA. Yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot. All right. Enjoy the episode, folks. I was in the Philippines and I traveled to an island just west of mainland Philippines, an island called Palawan, where people don't travel to very often. It was really hard to find transportation, and the transportation didn't come really frequently. And this was on the back of my recovery from an eating disorder, where I was trying to figure out what it meant to be in my body and experience the world around me. I was staying in a little town called El Nido, up north in Palawan, and there was no one who spoke English around, and I was able to catch a boat out into the ocean, where there were these large rock structures jutting up from the water. And the guide who was driving the boat told the other people in the boat to leave our things and to dive into the water, and he pointed towards the wall. And it was hard to see from where we were standing and if there was anything below us, so we thought maybe there was fish or some sort of aquatic life that would be worth adventuring towards. So together, we left our clothes and our cameras and our wallets in this boat, and together jumped into the water and swam down, where we could see that there was this hole in the wall. And so, realizing that this might be an interesting experience, I swam through the hole in the wall to get to the other side, where there was an incredibly pristine beach, the most beautiful flora and fauna I'd ever seen, and colorful fish that seemed to go on forever. And I felt like I heard the voice of God. But what's interesting, when I felt like I heard the voice of God, it felt like it connected me to everything around me. It felt like I had this experience where I was both in my body and totally outside of my body at the exact same time. And I remember hearing specific words, but also feeling like they weren't words that were limited to the inside of my head, that they were all around me at the same time. And as this was happening, and I'm swimming in this totally undiscovered area of this tiny little island that felt almost impossible to get to, There was a sense of wonder and awe that seemed to take over my entire body. And in that moment, I felt like God was in me and through me, and I was in God and through God, and that things were bigger than my understanding. And it's hard to come back from that experience and feel like things that are normal have as much meaning and value. I remember one of the last things that I did in that little cove, if you will, was I grabbed a stone, a stone that had a hole in it, just like the hole that I'd swam through. And I picked it off the floor of the ocean and swam all the way back to the boat with it in my hand and went through the town later and found a piece of string that I could wrap through that hole to wear on my neck. And for almost three years, I wore that string with that rock around my neck to remind myself of the sense of the bigness and the tangibleness of the God that I'd experienced in that moment. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast.
So what is mysticism and what are mystical experiences? I read a paper once uh, as I was trying to figure out, hey, the first time I had a mystical experience, I'd never heard the term. So I was left trying to figure out what happened. And it's only through uh, reading another book I ran into a reference to this paper um, that's pretty old. <laughs> so Stace? Uh, Schrader. Okay. Good. Who, we have different info. Who identifies the seven characteristics common to mystical experiences, which uh, he analyzed simply by interviewing a lot of people who had mystical experiences. And he said they were one ineffability, which is the inability to capture the experience in ordinary language Two, a noetic quality or the notion that it contained otherwise hidden or inaccessible knowledge. Three, transiency, meaning that they happen in a short period of time. They're not perpetual or ongoing. Four is passivity, which is the sense that the mystical experience is happening to you. It's not something that you invoked or control. Five is the unity of opposites, meaning this creates a sense of oneness, wholeness, or completeness. Six is timelessness, meaning there's a sense that the experience transcends time at seven. It's, excuse me, transcends time itself. And then seven, a feeling that one has somehow encountered the true self. Um, and I remember the first time I read that, just pinpricks all over my body because it's so well articulated what it was like for me in that moment where I felt like I was, I was in the presence of God. And in some ways, <laughs> um, discovering myself for the first time. But it's, it's, we also want to you know, make the distinction that mystical experiences and mysticism are distinct from one another. You can have no mystical spiritual practice whatsoever and suddenly have a mystical experience, or you can be a person who practices mystic spirituality, even in the context of a specific religious tradition, but never have a specific mystical experience. Mysticism is, um, I think, most simply stated, um, a spirituality which is not tied to specific language or imagery, whereas a mystical experience is a short-term or temporary experience that has such a um, radical impact on the person who's had it that they aren't able to articulate it with language. So even if someone is, you know, uh, a conservative American Protestant, if they have a mystical experience, they won't be able to summarize it in passages of Scripture or specific imagery other than to say perhaps that they were in the presence of God. I find it also helpful to think about Stace's definition of mystical experience, which looks at how there is a constellation of experiences that regardless of religion tends to show up. And mm. these are really interesting to compare with what you just said. A few are similar and some are different. A sense of unity with the world which you'd also said transcending space and time feeling that something is ineffable, but Stace also qualifies that there is a sense of sacred, a deeply felt positive mood in that moment and that the experience feels real. So it doesn't, it's not felt or sensed as being a dissociative episode. 
and leaves a positive change in the self, Mm -hmm. that it has an impact that lasts beyond the finite nature of the experience itself. Mm. And apparently, according to these criteria, we can say that in North America, about 30 to 40% of the population have had a mystical experience. Wow. Wow. Schrader uh, estimates it as much lower, but... How much lower? uh, I don't remember a specific number. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to also look at some of the same... The things that overlap the belief systems which might promote mystical experiences, um, like having a belief and a sense of unity with all other people might promote a mystical experience. Uh, Same with people who've had other kinds of out-of-body experiences. Um. But this research also shows that there is common religious imagery when having mystical experiences associated with drug use. Uh, In 96% of people in this one study who took um, a psychedelic drug, there was some type of religious imagery. 91% saw a church or temple, 58% saw a sacred person, 49% saw a devil or a demon, and 34% saw a religious symbol. So it seems that in the majority well, obviously, almost all people who've had some sort of mystical experiences that are drug-induced, that there's an overwhelming number of people who have a, a religious component to it. Hmm. It's a funny thing to talk, talk about this topic to me because it's sort of the, like you used that, that uh, analogy a couple of weeks ago of the, the fish in the water. How can you even see it? Uh, this is, Mysticism is sort of the water for the liturgist podcast. Hmm. Uh, and like talking about it directly is like, is a, is a funny feeling to me because it's, there's no, to me, there's not an it to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Same here. Uh, even as you, you're talking and even as you're sharing your story, it just brings so many feelings up for me. Feelings of uh, unsure how to communicate. Uh, like, I don't know how to say that experience in a way that is meaningful or matters, um, outside of what was felt and seen or, you know, in that moment. Uh, also I think of that scripture where it says, you know, when Mary met the angel, she pondered these things, you know, quietly in her heart. And I think mysticism generally tends to be those types of experiences where they are hard to put into words and you don't know, um, how to qualify them. (laughs) But I feel the same way that when something really sacred has happened, like the story that I just told, I feel really reluctant to share the story because it feels so intimate for me and so transformative and foundational. And it feels like it gets cheapened the more that I talk about it. And so I've actually only shared that story once or twice before. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. It's hard because it's, it's the, it's the, the same conversation about mysticism to me is the same conversation about God. The moment we start putting too many words on it mm. and too many definitions and too many, it begins to lose its magic or its the wideness of the experience to the narrowness of the language uh, around it. I, I don't talk a lot about uh, mystical experiences I've had after my first book. Yeah. not And there is the one thing, like, it's very intimate. But when I say I don't talk about that, I mean literally to anyone ever. Um, mm. because it has created such a distance, like the most profound moment of my life. My primary recollection at this point is myself telling people about the most profound moment of my life. And when the reason mystics are mystics 
is to be able to sit with those experiences. That's the basis of their spirituality. And so I am a mystic whose most profound experience in mysticism has become distant specifically through the use of language. Hmm. Um, you know, when I first started telling people out of excitement about like my beach story, I would have to go back and listen to recordings of myself telling it in earlier, earlier versions to help remember the actual sensory experience that happened at the time. Um, Cause when you recall an experience and you're processing through your language centers, you're changing it every time. And um, so if I have something that happens to me now through meditation or contemplation that has those seven characteristics, now I just kind of sit with it and I, but I don't turn it into a narrative and I simply wait to encounter it again in contemplation. Um, and that's like a strange thing because growing up evangelical, like one of the primary onuses of spirituality was replicating the spiritual experience to other people. And mysticism does not create that kind of a drive. Um, it, it, mysticism it may change your behavior and temperament towards others. It may make you more charitable or more kind, but it doesn't, I've, at least in my experience with any mystics I've met from multiple faith traditions, turn you into someone who has a zeal to convert others to mysticism and to your perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't see a lot of people like, you know what you really need to do. Yeah. Transcend all language. <laughs> Brother, would you like to transcend all language? Tonight? <laughs> like it's yeah. just not a, it's not a thing. The Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. I think that when we feel something and we're excited about it because we're such relational beings, it often feels really good to share that experience with someone. And I think that sometimes we do that maybe even to reify it. Yeah, mm. to, for it to feel real. Exactly. I've done that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, for it to be feel to feel real and become a connective point. And yet I've had experiences where I've shared it with people and it actually felt like it reduced it down yeah. <laughs> both in trying to put it into words, but in their reaction going, wait, what happened or no, or to, what then what happened? And I thought, no, 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 you're pulling me out yeah. of the felt experience. And Rick Hansen, the neuroscientist has done really interesting work on changing our brain through savoring positive experiences and how that actually can help us buffer against things that would, you know, lead us probably more into a depressive mindset or having symptoms of depression. And so when we have positive experiences, like a felt sense of joy or love to stay with it and to let it deepen and to keep it within yourself, almost as if you're tasting a really incredible dessert or something, you just want to sit mm. with it and let it, let all of your senses become alive and awake and how you can draw those experiences out as a way of making them real for you neurologically and then giving your brain the opportunity to go back there more frequently hmm. because you've actually built a neural network that supports the revisiting of that kind of experience. Hmm. In an interesting way, Mystical experiences can become uh, stumbling blocks for a mystical spiritual path because it is so easy to get attached to them. They're so beautiful and 
life-altering and when you have them you can you feel like you've seen how it is how could you ever go back to seeing things any other way and you want you want to do something you want to build an altar you know i've got a rock upstairs in my dresser that from a mystical experience that i had that it has the word flow on it and i just remember that was part of the experience it was like oh and yeah I, I like i've literally built altars before like out in the out in the woods or something like piled rocks on each other or or, or yeah kept mementos kept necklaces from a, a pilgrimage i went on one time and i found in my spiritual practice through the years that when I try to keep going back to it, I don't think there's anything wrong with like appreciating it and savoring it as much as possible. But it's easy to keep looking back. And the mystical experience always happens right now. It's it's a full experience of the now. It's it's eyes fully open, mind unclenched, heart open to now and to the fullness of that mystery and experiencing it in a fuller way than one might normally in their typically ego-constricted zone. Um, And so trying to become or uh, become that person that can see like that, to try to become a mystic, to try to become a spiritually enlightened person um, has in that very seeking the very problem. (laughs) Like it's the trying to be somewhere else, trying to have something else other than what is right here and right now. Um, And so those experiences, it's a weird, it's weird how we can talk about them and it minimizes the experience for us, but it also takes us away from right now. (laughs) It also like, Become, it can become an idol. It can become something that you're seeking, like a, a high to get back to. And so I think that's part of the reason maybe that mystics are often wary of keeping to just revisit and talk about those things, those experiences. Because uh, it's... Then you're talking about an experience, a memory, an abstraction of a now rather than just encountering the Tao that is always eternally present. So I I would just say that I I feel like I'm a spiritual person. I feel like I've always been on a spiritual path since I was a young kid. Mm -hmm. I've always felt like I've walked a mystical journey and I've had mystical experiences along the way. And, um, but there was a season and a phase where I, knowing that the older I got, wanted to press into that, wanted more of that, wanted like sought after mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel like, is it, is what you just said, like kind of the fruit of what you learned going through that, that type of phase of like seeking the mystical mm-hmm. experience? Is it wrong to seek mystical experiences or no. is it, is that a necessary stepping stone into that whole the holy and the sacred in that i mean i think even when you when you read those descriptions of people that have have reported mystical experiences they report it's not something that they feel like they did it's not something that you feel like you and when you have it it's not like something you feel like oh i finally accomplished the mystical experience 
<laughs> it was yeah. it was gifted hmm. to you or that's nah, not even a great way of saying it yeah well, I think uh, gifted's not wrong why is gifted uh, well, wrong well it's it implies a duality but as you as you come back to duality it feels like a gift <laughs> mm. or maybe just uh, given give but still a given has a giver and a receiver um just both are you <laughs> or the or just the flow of of the universe being that of givenness that everything mm. is given to another and forms something you know yeah um there are practices you can undertake that increase your propensity yeah. Yeah. to have a mystical experience but none By of the them numbers. none of them take you to 100 mm. percent uh or even close to it and that makes it really hard for us to research what a mystical experience is because we can't create them even in people who are more prone to them. Mm. So it's really hard for us to know what they're actually like. We can't put someone in an fMRI scanner during a mystical experience. Hmm. Well, they do have a close cousin available pharmaceutically through psychedelics. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we have studied the brains of people on psychedelic substances. Um, And I'm actually, I mean, the problem is again, that reproducibility but I'd be really curious to know if mystical experiences cause the same sort of state of, you know, highly interconnectedness in the brain, or mm-hmm. if they create the same kind of, um, we know that psilocybin, for example, you know, actually causes your brain to actually generate and grow a lot of dendrites at once, um, which then changes the way the next time you sleep that your neural circuits are groomed. Um, and there's, you know, long-term impacts on mood and optimism and even color perception in the case mm-hmm. of psilocybin. Um, and which, by the way, in this program and on Ask Science Mike, we get a ton of questions from people about mysticism, psychedelics, and spirituality. The thread running through all those things. Yeah, and we've got pretty good evidence that mysticism is a health intervention for people that it's good for you to experience a mystical experience. And so wouldn't it be nice if we could make them happen? But then of course it becomes an object Hmm. and it loses its sacredness. Hmm. I found a study from Decker in 2007 that showed that mystical experiences were transformative and healing for combat veterans. And it actually was much more effective for them than several other kinds of intervention. So it gave a sense of meaning and purpose. But again, you can't prescribe a mystical experience. Mm. But Um, you can set one on the path. Ish. (laughs) But the problem is if you set them on the path by saying try these practices and their goal is specifically a mystical experience and not mystic spirituality, you could just be setting them up for perpetual frustration. Mm. In fact, it's statistically likely you're setting them up for perpetual frustration. So set them up for spirituality. Right. And that was actually one of the main takeaways from this paper was we need to support people to understand that spirituality is a mental health intervention Mm. and that it helps us be well as humans. If not just for providing community, then providing a sense of meaning and giving you a way to make sense of painful experiences Mm. so that you're not stuck in them. So what do you th- what do you see as the differences between mental health and spirituality? Do you see any differences? That's a pretty ma- what between mental illness or mental health? No, I mean or like between between your like your field, yeah, of clinical counseling and yeah. um, psychology or and brain all all the 
whatever I do, whatever you do yeah. and, and spirituality is, are they the exact same thing or is there any delineation in your mind? No, I think that, I think that they're not the same thing. And I actually think of, of spirituality as being an essential component of human experience and thriving. And I think psychology helps us measure and come up with tools to understand what that looks like in people's lives when they're thriving. But I don't think psychology is an answer or makes you feel one with the world. Mm -hmm. So I think of spirituality probably being a, a solution for a psychological problem. Mm. Um, psychology really is the study of human thought and behavior and counseling psychology takes us into the domain of what does it mean to be well as a human being and what are the social justice components of mental health and how do we thrive as people both individually and collectively. And I'm, I think it's pretty hard to have that conversation without also dipping into spirituality as a thing that helps us see that all people are valuable and that everyone has worth and that we're actually not different from each other and we're actually ultimately all connected. So in, in the future of religion, Ken Wilber book, um, <laughs> gotta be the most referenced figure in season four so far, so far. You this, gotta read that then. Um, don't, don't pollute your mind. Okay. Whoa, <laughs> whoa. But he makes the delineation, <laughs> makes the delineation between waking up, growing up and cleaning up. And so growing up, would be more like spiral dynamic stuff that we've talked about as far as moving from survival baseline instincts to just more of a, a we tribal mythic mindset um, or magic mindset to, to a mythic sort of one story we to a rational to a postmodern pluralistic. So that sort of like, Growing up in society is moving like, oh, there's more complexity than just I got to get my stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And growing up that way. And oh, what about this group of people that is under the 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 boot of oppression? That's a that's a more complicated. Like you don't think of that crap when you're getting chased by a lion. Well, yeah, that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah, exactly. as well. Yeah. Exactly. So that kind of that's growing up. He says that waking up is more of this spiritual path of becoming aware of ultimate reality, of the underlying unity of all of that. Um, whereas growing up would be more of like a relative truth sort of situation. Waking up would be ultimate reality. And then cleaning up would be a lot, some more of like shadow work and, and some psychological work. And he's saying, he, he makes the case that in the West, we've we've done a great job compared to most of the world at growing up. We have, you know, obviously have a long way to go, but we have things like the civil rights movement and feminism, and there's there's like movement towards growing up in the West, where a lot of places in the East and other places in the world that it's it's still very there's caste systems and patriarchy is not being it's institutionalized as law, but the West has largely remained completely unaware of any conversation about waking up. It's just, we're totally asleep to that conversation in all of our, in academia and in our institutions and everything. Like, it's just not even, it's not even part of our vernacular. The only thing we even use 
close to awake in the terms that have been used for millennia is woke. And that's about growing up. That's not about, hmm. we just, yeah. is totally out of our consciousness. Um, but conversely in the East, uh, they've done a lot of more work and progress with waking up and they've got great practices and traditions and philosophies with helping people wake up. Uh, but stuck in some very primitive ways growing up. So you, you have, you can have these mystical experiences. This is what I love about what he's saying is cause I've been confused about hearing people. You hear, sometimes you hear spiritual teachers or, or people that have had mystical experiences and they're teaching things that you can tell, like you've seen, like you've seen how it is. Like you have felt the underlying reality. How are you so messed up? Like, why is there still so much? You're a chauvinist still. Like, why are you still, you're a racist Cast still. system, yeah. Caste system, yeah. How is that possible? And seeing the differences. So when you have these, you can have a mystical, not only experience, but awareness and groundedness of the underlying unity of all things and still be interpreting those experiences through the viewpoints of growing up. So you can, you might see a great light on a beach and depending where you are in the growing up ladder of spiral dynamics, sort of, or Maslow or any of that kind of those models, um, you're going to interpret it differently. Somebody might interpret it as God. Somebody might interpret it as their brain firing neurons. Somebody might interpret it as a bodhisattva visited them. You know, it's an angel, whatever the goddess Gaia, um, depending on what your your growing up views and structures and interpretation lenses are so it all comes together in experience and then the shadow work the the way the cleaning up can affect all that as well so you can have you can have a very high uh nuanced growing up and and have a pretty high up waking up but have these shadows from earlier stages in your life that keep you that can actually cause some of the, like you can actually use some of the power that you gain from uh, seeing the underlying nature of systems. You can see like, wow, I can manipulate this system. I can see how this is tied to this and how this is tied to this and use that for bad things. You can use that to destroy in the world based on shadows that may have been arrested um, and undealt with from earlier stages of development. Anyway, I think think just... Hmm? Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't uh, hear the cough. Thanks for the the uh, communication because that that was beautifully savage. Beautifully. Huh? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh. Anyway, how that all goes together, I think, is fascinating and and clarifies how it's all needed. All the the psychological approaches to see what's actually going on. What are the traumas that are happening? What are some of the shadows that we're carrying around? Shadow boxing, shadow avoiding. Um, how are we interpreting these experiences? Are they coming into containers that are inherently violent, that are inherently racist and sexist and oppressive, and we're using these mystic- mystical experiences to sort of um, operate more powerfully in destructive systems? Um, I think the church does that too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know using the spiral dynamics language, right? You know, you can have a second tier experience, but be very, you know, still, you know, in a, a blue V meme, right. Or, mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of people 
and will use those experiences as a way to justify like their theology, to justify yeah. their um, bigotry, hatred, um, because they haven't, like you said, they might be enlightened in this area, but they haven't grown all the way up. The things that you were saying reminded me of some of the work that I'm reading in that's emerging in the field of neuroscience and affective neuroscience and how everything that we're learning right now is pushing us towards integration and integration in every sense of the word that we want all the parts of the brain to be working together. We want the mind and the body to be working together. We want us and them to not be us and them, but all of us and how we see our brains and our identities and the world and an integration sounds like a great place to move to promote more mystical experiences that we want more we want more of a sense of things being together and things being better because they're together when we do brain imaging studies on people who have had mystical experiences and we ask them to recall that experience we find a activation pattern in the brain that is in many ways similar to the networks we associated when we ask people who believe deeply in God to think of God and what's interesting about that recollection is if immediately after asking someone to recall a mystical experience, you ask them to describe it, you watch the energy patterns of the brain shift towards the temporal lobes, towards the memory center of the brain, towards the prefrontal cortex, and then as they begin to describe the experience, the network of activation in the brain changes from the prior state. And then if later in that session, or indeed in a completely separate session, you ask someone to recall that mystical experience again, that original pattern isn't seen again. Now, if you ask someone in a brain imaging study to recall a mystical experience, and then you don't ask them to articulate it in language, in further imaging studies, the integrity of the original pattern in the networks of the brain remains. And this led neuroscientist Andrew Newberg to state that he believes, therefore, the most genuine form of spirituality is mystical spirituality because it allows the integrity of the experience to persist and therefore also to continue to transform the individual. Great. The word of Andrew Newberg. <laughs> Thanks be to Andrew. Thanks be to Andrew. All praise be to Andrew. in neuroscience often we learn what neuroanatomical structures are related to what kinds of human experience based on when those structures aren't functioning in the way that we think that they should and then we learn through that what they probably did based on observing how behavior is different so there's an interesting study from 2016 which showed that people who had damage and lesions to their frontal and temporal lobes were actually more likely to experience 
mystical experiences than healthy controls, than people who didn't have damage to frontal or temporal lobes. So from that, we can speculate that somehow frontal and temporal lobe function actually impairs the ability to have a mystical experience. Mm. And that led to a trope for a while that still persists among atheists online equating spiritual experiences with brain damage. They're saying basically, Mm. if you have spirituality, all you're doing is having, I I saw it quoted once as a um, seizure in the... Hmm. in the temporal lobe which is a complete misstatement and gross oversimplification of the research i don't know if this is antagonistic or not but just because it's a seizure in the brain doesn't mean it's not real absolutely right and so same thing albus dumbledore said just so you know oh i know so many of our experiences (laughs) we can track neurologically through brain imaging but it doesn't mean that's just what they are right i know you're not saying that that. absolutely not we've gotten so much feedback from people who've taken our new online video workshops we've got one on meditation and the practice of meditation and another on uh, faith transitions and spiritual growth using the enneagram and boy that's been fun to see uh, how much people have gotten out of those courses i think we both had a shared skepticism about the whole idea of doing (laughs) online video workshops like a deep skepticism um, that lasted all the way until we got through producing the first one. And I'm actually really happy with them. They're, they're a very efficient way to convey information along with uh, emotional context, which is probably the most science Mike way possible of saying I like the course. <laughs> <laughs> they transfer not only information, but emotional context. <laughs> Efficiently. It's a it's a slogan. We could make a we could make a little jingle for it. I'm gonna do it. <laughs> so if you want to grab these courses, just head over to shop.theliturgist.com. That's liturgist with an S, as referenced earlier in the program. It's a very efficient way to convey information with emotional context. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Every day begins with the same realization. I am. I exist. As I rouse slowly from a state of unknowing and unawareness, my senses continue to play a symphony that was already in progress for an audience that just walked in. My awareness. My consciousness. Me. We humans experience this miracle every day, and we often approach it with dread or a sense of loss. 
There is something lovely about being warm and without any awareness of the self and the problems that awareness come with. We need things. Food, water, shelter, safety, sex, friendships, likes, comments, shares, to make a mark in life, to be remembered, to be, and most importantly, not to not be. It is frankly quite stressful and worrisome. Like everyone else, I've spent my life trying to find safety by building a view of the world that makes sense. I feel best when these views help me find a secure place in a community of other people and when I find a way of seeing things that makes me feel safe, I can become obsessed with defending it. This may be views about God, or views about which political party is best to vote for, or maybe even what musical group is the greatest of all time. Whatever it is, I want to feel certain that I am right, because that certainty means I am safe, and that the rug under me will under no circumstances be pulled out. But life is tricky, and a masterful puller of rugs. Too many times in life I have found myself on the floor with a sore backside, watching with astonishment as life walks away with yet another treasured rug. I am a Christian, then an atheist, then unmoored, confused, and rugless. It is here, at the end of all my ideas, I get a glance of freedom. Back to that first moment of each day, as the symphony of senses plays on, regardless of how I try to categorize and therefore control the experience. Mysticism has taught me that the first moments after waking are very important. Because your response to awareness can reshape each day and therefore your entire life experience. On a mystical morning, it begins with I am. I am awake. I am aware. I am temporary. I am a brain telling itself a story. I am, as Julian of Norwich so beautifully stated, made of God. I am not in control of this moment or any moment at all. I am free to experience this moment without trying to control or understand it. I am able to understand some things, sometimes, but getting too invested in this understanding often leads to loss and heartache. I am choosing to be grateful and to be aware of this moment and to be at all. I am choosing to hold loosely to my understanding. I am choosing to release my need for certainty in every moment. I am alive for another day and determined to savor its joys and sorrows. I am. 
Mysticism is about what happens at the end of the road of knowing. It is not some gleeful rejection of knowledge or wisdom, some kind of willful spiritual ignorance. Instead, it is about an understanding that our knowledge has limits, and when we consider the greatest of all things, language, knowledge, and human constructs can't bottle the unspeakable. Through years of mystical practice and quite a lot of therapy, I have learned to hold my ideas about God loosely. And that's led me to hold all my ideas loosely. And that has led to a beautiful journey of losing my intellectual ego. Though this loss caused grief, it's led to a profound fascination in hearing the stories and experiences that other people have in life, especially those people who understand God differently than I do, which is, of course, everyone. It has led to a lot less stress as I recognize the folly of trying to control my life or the lives of other people. But most of all, steering my awareness toward a mystical view of reality has shown me that beauty is all around me, all the time, in very unexpected places, those parts of the universe that I once saw as unclean. Because they are made of God too, whatever that means. In trying to explain what mysticism is like for me, it may be more helpful to explain what it's not like. It's not like an inflation of the ego. It's not a feeling that I am important, or even that I am unimportant, loved or unloved. It's not a feeling that I am close to God. It's not even really a feeling. It simply is the experience of what is directly. When I used to think about God, I thought of him as an other, someone else out there. Then I thought of her as close, as close as my own breath. Then they became my breath. Then there was no breath. It just was this the non-dual interconnected all, as it is. And what is this? Is it atoms and molecules and quarks? Is it spirit? Is it math? Is it story? Is it God? The ego spins stories and crafts words about all of this, giving it names. The mystic simply experiences it. All of the doctrines and belief systems and names and the like are all fine and good and have their place. But in the face of true reality, all of this is shadow. It's phantoms, little idols for our amusement. Mysticism for me is about 
Neti neti. Not this. Not that as I can speak of it or think about it. But simply this in its infinite and present glory. To experience this directly, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to accomplish or strive for. Nothing to receive, nothing to give. It just is. He just is. A just is. You can't escape it. And when you stop trying, there it is. All in all, God, Isness, Brahman, Christ, the universe, form and void. Call it whatever you want, but don't take the name too seriously if you don't want your ego's illusions to be your final end game. The Sun in Drag, a poem by Hafez, is translated by Daniel Ladinsky in the book The Gift. You are the sun in drag. You are God hiding from yourself. Remove all the mine that is the veil. Why ever worry about anything? Listen to what your friend Hafez knows for certain. The appearance of this world is a Magi's brilliant trick, though its affairs are nothing into nothing. You are a divine elephant with amnesia, trying to live in an ant hole. Sweetheart, oh sweetheart, you are God in drag. Stay close to those sounds. The sun turns a key in a lock each day as soon as it crawls out of bed. Light swings open a door and the many kinds of love rush out onto the infinite green field. Your soul sometimes plays a note against the sky's ear that excites the birds and planets. Stay close to any sounds that make you glad you are alive. Everything in this world is helplessly reeling. An invisible wake was created when God said to his beautiful dead lover, Be. Hafez, who will understand you if you do not explain that last line? Well then, I will sing it this way. When God said to illusion, Be. Again, those are poems from The Gift, poems by Hafez, the great Sufi master from Compass. Thanks to Daniel Wadinsky for allowing us to read those on the podcast. Did you hear Jesus' words any differently after your first mystical experience? Did you ever? I don't like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying talk about the first mystical experience. I'm no, saying, no, I don't want to talk. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about it. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. 
I respect that. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Let's, oh, let's get four mystics to do a show on <laughs> mysticism. And no one wants to share that. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> when you see, you You'll will know. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who, I mean, that's another thing that like you who... Who, he who doesn't know speaks, and he who knows does not speak. <laughs> it's another but thing it's not like, doubt. that's not to say, I have, a, I have a bit of a beef when mysticism is, is, is um, communicated as this exclusive domain, yeah. right? This exclusionary practice. No, that's not, it's just, you just can't explain it. That doesn't mean it's uh, closed off to anybody. Right. It doesn't mean that, you know. You have to pay a guru $5,000 after a pilgrimage <laughs> so they can show you the light. I often think, and I, and I could be wrong on this, but I often think that just when you're doing it all wrong and going about it wrong, <laughs> that there can be this moment where it just turns and there's an opening and there's, there's a crack where the light gets to come in. And so you could be pursuing these experiences in all the wrong ways and going about it and, 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 you know, all of that. And yet somehow I, I have to think, or, and it has been my experience. So not just have to think that even when going about it wrong, that an opportunity presents itself like a, a new way of seeing unfolds. Um, just when you are probably at your shittiest <laughs> or just at your vainest in this whole like endeavor of spirituality. Um, I found in my own personal life, sometimes the, that the moment I least expected the mystical experience to happen is when it actually happens. Like when I'm not looking for it and I, you know, but I'm looking for it, but then I finally kind of just stop looking for it. And then it's like right there, kind of as if it's been waiting there the whole time, uh, looking to break in. Back to your read the Bible differently. What's the greatest commandment in scripture? Do you remember? Love the Lord your God, your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, greatest is love the Lord your God, right? That comes from Luke 10, yeah. where it, which immediately goes into the Good Samaritan story. Well, after my first mystical experience, I started getting back into the Bible again, eventually. Then I had another mystical experience. Uh, and I got really into the Bible after that one because my first mystical experience, I felt like I was in the presence of God for a few moments. And my second mystical experience, I felt like I was in God's lap for like a year. <laughs> like it was so intense. So I got really into the Bible again because the, 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 my concerns about historicity and all these things kind of faded and the Bible as um, an accounting of experiences like mine but ancient and transcendent became very important. So, you know, I really since, since my spiritual reawakening through mysticism, the good Samaritan has been my favorite thing in the whole Bible. But instead of reading Luke 10, I was reading Mark and Mark 12 goes through, uh, the same story, but from a different perspective. And what's fascinating to me is in Mark 12, verse 29, and this is for all of you who say we never cite specific scripture references on the Liturgist podcast. Excuse me, I'll start in 28. 
Well, is that the, a thing? People people say that. Yes, yeah, especially <laughs> in our iTunes ratings. Whenever we get a no. non, when we get a non five or four star reference, it's either like they're false teachers or they never cite specific scripture references. Those are, those are fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not pushing back on either of those. So twenty verse twenty eight. This is Mark twelve, verse twenty eight. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So, now then this this telling of that event doesn't go into the parable of the good samaritan it actually goes in and deconstructs the idea of the messiah in terms of political lineage now what's fascinating to me is deuteronomy 6 4 uh was my favorite old testament verse post mystical experience yes that's that's like the um, because it speaks to this this mysterious unity of of the divine Mm -hmm. and so here in my favorite account of the teachings of christ is my most profound and favorite teaching from the old testament about the oneness of god Mm -hmm. and so this commandment to love god with everything you have begins with the explanation of the oneness of the divine which to me puts like kind of a different spin on the whole concept it takes it away from this like narcissistic god Mm. needing worship to opening yourself up completely to the connection with one Mm. um and then and then it pulls it back incarnationally so now you've done this love one with all of yourself and now love your neighbor as yourself um, and I thought it was interesting that when you, the gospel takes it through that perspective, we don't go straight into who is my neighbor, but who is Messiah. And basically the answer to us, well, it's not the son of David. It's not just another king. Um, and so what I found is post mystical experience and post mystical spirituality is I approach the scripture uh, not through a term of legalism anymore and not through a term of finding like concrete answers to moral questions or, you know, specific doctrines that become boundary markers around who is in and who is out and who is right and who is wrong and instead find reflected in the pages of the Bible the same light that animated that moment on the beach and has animated other moments of incredible beauty since then. And that's why I can identify as a Christian comfortably, because I find that oneness in the pages of the Bible, and that's what allows me to feel like I can comfortably identify myself as a Christian. But it's also what lets me count like any mystic from any spiritual tradition Mm -hmm. as my brother or my sister as my co-journeyer and honestly any person 
who pursues the divine from any tradition, be it spiritual, an ancient wisdom tradition, or even a sense of transcendence or eminence in a secular context, because that, that beautiful oneness is animating all of those things and present within them. I talked about this on the names episode a little bit, but um, the esoteric versus the exoteric nature of all religions. And at the center of all the big ones, there's mysticism. Like you can find them in any of the major religions. You can find mystics at, at the center of it. And arguably the founders of those religions uh, <laughs> or the right I mean, interpreters once I had mystical experience. And I saw the words of Jesus. It was like, Oh my God, <laughs> like how, how have we so misread this? It's crazy. You can hear like, Oh, he see, okay. He sees how it is and he's telling us how it is. And we are the people that he's telling us that can't hear what he's saying. I mean, he just spells it out. He's like, I'm telling you these things. And some of these seeds fall on soil and there's thorns and some of them fall in the rocks. You don't know what I'm saying. He's telling you that the religion that founds itself on his name has so ironically and unfortunately been exactly opposite of everything Jesus was about time and time again from the Crusades to current day politics. This is the reason that I don't currently call myself a Christian, even though I love Christ and I love Christians. And for a lot of the same reasons that Mike still calls himself a Christian, I still hold to a lot of that and love a lot of that as well. But as far as a label right now, I just don't know. It's like, like if there was like a Albert Einstein religion that was about how time is objective, space and time, there is no relativity. It's like precisely <laughs> opposite. It's like, Jesus, you've made this thing about Jesus, this exclusive, weird, exclusionary, three-tiered universe. What? What? What are you talking about? Hero with you, the Lord our God is one. I'm the vine and you're the branches. And it's all, you see me, you've seen the Father. There's just this constant oneness through his teachings that he's inviting, not only identifying with the Father himself, identify, inviting us into that identification, but then it gets, it gets translated and translated out and out and out and out and abstracted into religion. And where I land with all the externals and names and labels in the future, I have no idea. But I am far more interested in the mystical centers of all the religions at the core of the religions when you talk about like whether you're saying father spirit son or brahman vishnu shiva there's the juice there's the stuff at the center of it the truth that is directly experienced and then you like try to turn it into words and you try to turn it into doctrine and you try to turn it into metaphor and imagery and that's the exoteric part of the religions but the esoteric that center that gooey center in the middle of all of it is the same. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think about me five years ago or 10 years ago, hearing that I would have wrote you off as a heretic. Yeah. <laughs>
but I know what helped me, and I just want to give two recommendations. Uh, same author, actually. Uh, Things Hidden by Richard Rohr. Scripture of Spirituality. That's a great reference to a lot of stuff Michael's talking about. As well as uh, his other book, Divine Dance. I think they take the synthesis um, of what the mystics are talking about and, and show you how and Jesus was. Yeah, and he's Christian. He's a Franciscan monk. He he breaks those things down for, for, for all you Christian uh, fundamentalists out there who are like, I don't get it. The Christian <laughs> fundamentalists, uh, they will not delight in, in the Richard writings Rohr. of Richard Rohr. Well, <laughs> I say that to the I say that to the ones on the brink because there's okay. a, and yeah. the ones yeah. that listen to this podcast. People have started a journey. Okay, because if, if you're like full on funding, yeah, 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 not full on. If but you if, have brought Richard Rohr to me in my SBC days, I would have politely smiled and then prayed for your soul every night. Mm. But then there came a point where it was yeah, oh. yeah, tipping point. So for those of you who don't identify as being Christian or even spiritual, we might propose that phenomenology is an interesting avenue towards mysticism. Phenomenology, the science of phenomena is distinct from that of the nature of being an approach that concentrates on the study of consciousness and the objects of direct experience. One of the things that I'm learning in my reading about phenomenology, particularly the Dutch school of phenomenology in Max van Manen's work, is to do phenomenology. You can't think about things you have to live it mm. you have to live in a space of wonder so even doing hermeneutic phenomenology as a research methodology you can't actually do it correctly unless you're curious and from a place of authenticity and you have a sense of appreciation and gratitude for the mystery and the wonder of existence as it's as it's experienced through consciousness so phenomenology really is our study of human experience as we consciously experience it and what it means to notice the things that are given to see what exists the phenomena and i think that we can practice being in a state of wonder about the things around us the feel of a petal on our finger the sensation of food that we delight in in our mouth and having a sense of expansive wonder and awe about just the experience of being alive. I wonder if practicing wonder through phenomenology could be a way to strengthen the neural networks that allow us to access a mystical experience because we're already living with one foot out the door. We're already living with a sense of awe and majesty and since I've started doing phenomenology as a research methodology, believe it or not, this is through my research work, I feel like I'm having these micro mystical experiences. Mm. So perhaps not meeting all of the criteria that we listed before, but moving into a state of wonder and awe and transcendence and oneness and gratitude and a sense of losing understanding of time and space and just being in something whether it's appreciating the way a bird is flying in the sky or smelling a beautiful smell, it feels like the practice of wonder is slowly taking over my life in a way that's enriching even the most subtle or even mundane moments. Boom, 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 <laughs> boom, 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 boom. boom. That's me doing the 
the podcast thing. <laughs> Don't quit your day job. That is the podcast thing now. Boom, 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 boom. Don't quit your day job. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, it's not pitchy enough to match my voice. Yeah, this is our outro. Oh, I thought we were just listening to music. I was like, well, this is nice. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode on mysticism. I guess kind of our uh, opus in terms of spirituality for those of you who say that we don't go into enough spiritual things on Liturgist Podcast. That's two in a row, although sorry to all of our secularist and atheist listeners who have been complaining that we've been getting too spiritual lately. Have people been saying that? Yes. <laughs> we, can, we can please exactly one-third of the audience at any one time. <laughs> That's what happens when you mix science, faith, and art. So if you'd like to tell us why this episode was not spiritual enough or too spiritual... You can do so by going to theliturgist.com slash podcast and finding the episode on mysticism where you can leave a comment. You can also do the same on facebook.com slash theliturgist or at theliturgist on Twitter or Instagram. Or the best place to have a conversation about the episode is, of course, on the Patreon forum because that's where all the... The real insiders talk about stuff. It's my favorite place for these conversations. Yeah, yeah. they're like paragraphs and paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> Stories. and <laughs> They're amazing. Yeah. Um, if you want access to that, you can just become a patron. Just, even if it's a buck a month, you can get access to that. See these episodes and um, also get access to all the meditations and everything else on the Patreon as well. Oh, I would like to thank Tom Crouch. He gave me a few uh, tracks that we were able to use on this episode some of his instrumental stuff that was nice your hosts have been hillary mcbride william matthews michael gunger and me science mike thanks for listening everybody